morning. <clears throat> How are we doing this morning? Good? Well slept? No, one is, no one's eyes are closed. I'm kind of miraculous. That's a really cool thing. Um, how many of you, uh, and, and you can raise your hands, this isn't a rhetorical question, how many of you have experienced sibling rivalry in your life? Raise your hand. <laughs> I always love that question. I feel like I somehow bite a nerve every time. You know, sibling rivalry, it's, it's unique because I'm, I'm an only child, if you didn't know that, and so I didn't have sibling rivalry growing up, uh, and, and in some ways that's regrettable. There's a lot of things about being an only child that are just really awesome, but you know, there's downsides too. You don't have anybody to blame. You know, if something breaks in the house, it's, it's always your fault. Uh, growing up, our dog was a Yorkshire Terrier that was smaller than this coffee mug, so I couldn't even blame it on the dog because like, he wasn't strong enough to knock over even a drinking glass, let alone you know, anything else. And so I, I kind of got screwed in that regard. But sibling rivalry, it's something that I have missed growing up. Like if I, I wish I could have a sibling to have experienced that with. And, and, and my wife probably wishes the same thing because one of the things that happens, and maybe you've married an only child and you know all too well what's coming next, is you, you marry somebody as an only child and it's the first time that you live with another person in the same house that is like your equal, right? And you realize, I can mess with them. Now, if you had a sibling, you either experienced being messed with and you don't want to do that to someone else, or you messed with another sibling and you got your fill and you just don't need to take it out on your spouse. I had to learn really quickly that you can't prank and mess with your spouse the way that you would prank and mess with a sibling growing up. And I just have to learn that I'll never get to experience that joy. Right? But my, my, my wife does have a brother, and it's just fun to hear the stories of, like, just sheer love-filled abuse. That's the only way I can think of it. Like, stuff that if they weren't your brother or sister, like, lawsuits would be filed, right? But because you're related, somehow it makes it okay to, to abuse somebody to this extent. It's, it's, these, it's these beautiful, fun-filled stories of sibling rivalry. And if you are a sibling, you have either experienced it, and if you're sitting here and going, you know, I've never experienced that with my sibling, you're the guy. You're like, you're the abuser. Right? <laughs> if you don't think it happened, that means it's you. <laughs> it's just generally something that you have to come to grips with. If you call your brother or sister right now and say, hey, was there a... Yeah. Yeah. I'm still in therapy, thanks to you. Right? So, today in Scripture, we're going to look at the ultimate example of sibling rivalry and see what we might learn from it, right? As we've been moving through Genesis, we're, we're working through Abraham, and, and yes, or last week we looked at Abraham's call to sacrifice Isaac and how it demonstrated his extreme committed faithfulness to the Lord. And as we go through the book of Genesis, what starts to happen is we move away now from Abraham to the next generation. And each week, as we have three, two more, three more weeks left, we're going to move a subsequent generation down the chain. Right? And so today, in our passage, Abraham is not part of the equation anymore. Abraham is gone, and we are looking at Isaac and his family dynamic with his kids. And what we'll see is there's some patterns as the generations move on that help us understand how God works and who he is and what his nature is and how he's active and and, and moving in our midst today. All those things come to light when we examine these generational stories of Genesis. But today, we have sibling rivalry. And if you think your brother abused you and messed with you, I mean, this is good stuff. So I want to invite us to stand uh, and let's spend some time 
Uh, well, actually, stay, stay sitting. Stay sitting. I'm going to set it up a little bit first. Scatterbrained. I'm not, you're not the only one who lacked an hour of sleep today. Right? Jacob and Esau are the children of Isaac. Right? And, and in that time, one of the things that mattered more than anything was the birth order. Right? If you were the firstborn son, right, you had special blessings, inheritance, all those kinds of things. You got a double portion. Pretty much the, the estate, the family line went through you. And so not only that, but you would also get what we call a blessing. Now today, we think of that as something kind of superfluous. Like if your parents bless you, they could do that to you 50 times a day. They could do that to all your siblings. But the blessing in Old Testament time was something that was reserved for the eldest son at the time of kind of the passing of the torch, right? When the, the father was going to die on his deathbed, he would bless the oldest son. He would pronounce the blessing upon him. And it would include things like, here's the inheritance, here's what's yours, Here's what the little bit that goes to your other siblings. But you are now the patriarch of this family. And it would be, sometimes it would be kind of a prophetic blessing. Right? Here's what, what God has promised and how he's going to continue that on. But that is something that was just between you, the oldest son, and dad. Right? The shared moment of intimacy that, that carried weight and authority. And yes, actual inherited stuff and money with it. And so in the Old Testament times, the oldest got the inheritance. That's just how it worked, right? Jacob and Esau were fraternal twins. Esau was born like three minutes early. So he was the eldest son by just a little hair margin, right? And from the very beginning, we see that they just hated each other, right? They just hated each other. They feuded all the time. As a matter of fact, if we go back to Genesis 25, when, when Rebecca is pregnant with them, she talks about them fighting even in the womb with each other. That's how, how heated and hated they were. They just did not like each other. And the other thing to know is that when they're born, Esau, the oldest, is hands down Isaac's favorite. Esau was born with more hair than the average bear today. Right? He was born a man. Right? You ever see like a middle schooler with a full beard? Like, That's Esau. Right? He was tough. He was gruff. He spent his days out hunting for game and bringing home the food. Jacob was the dainty one. Jacob was kind of the mama's boy. Right? He wasn't out and gruff. He was feeble. Right? And he stayed home and he was the cook and all those things. He stayed home and hung out with mom. And so Rebecca's favorite was Jacob, but Isaac's favorite was Esau. And that's the dynamic that we get into when we start this passage. Now, our passage finds us at the very end of Isaac's life. He's about to die and he's looking to pronounce the blessing upon his son Esau. Right? That's where we find ourselves. And our story picks up there. So let's stand and let's read together. Well, let's not. Let's listen as I read to you. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau his older son and said to him, My son... And he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now take then your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out in the field and hunt game for me. And prepare for me delicious food, such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord, before I die. 
Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him, and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice, and go and bring them to me. And so he went and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. And then Rebekah took the best garment of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went into his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father. I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to him, How is it that you have found me so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near me that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him, because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. And so he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son Esau? And he answered, I am. And then he said, Bring it near to me, that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. And so he brought it near to him, and he ate, and he brought him wine, and he drank. And then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him. And he said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? And he answered, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. And then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless even me also, my father. But he said, your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. And then he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? 
Isaac answered, he said, Behold, I have made him lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. And then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from you the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have a seat. Deceitful little conniving twerp, that Jacob is. By the way, the word Jacob, the name Jacob actually means the deceiver. So talk about like an aptly named, prophetically named person, right? He's this little conniving, he might be dainty, but he's the smart one, right? Esau knows how to hunt, but Jacob knows how to connive his way into things. And so we have a whole bunch going on here, right? He, he deceives him into the blessing, and Isaac tries to bless his firstborn, but he is instead deceived not just by his son, but by his own wife. Children can sometimes stink, but your own spouse, I mean, that just cuts deep. Now, as with most stories, there's multiple facets to what's going on here, kind of beyond the obvious, and, and that's the case here, too. When we go back to Genesis 25, we see one really important detail that kind of entirely changes the nature of the story here. All right? And so let's, let's take a really quick look just at this one little section. In Genesis 25, when they're fighting in the womb, Rebecca is begging the Lord for some kind of answer. She's inquiring of the Lord, and she says, what is happening? And so she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord says to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Right? It's important to understand that from the very get-go, the intention of the Lord, and he made it known to Rebekah, was that Jacob would be served by Esau. The older would serve the younger. This was radically against anything culturally normal at that time. The idea of a younger brother being in charge of the eldest son was unheard of. It was against all cultural norms. It's not how things were done, even among God's people. And so when God says that, he's going against his own cultural norms that had been set up. Up to this moment, it always had been. He's, he's blessing the firstborn. And here's, we learn something about God here that, that's pretty important. God will do whatever he wants to do. Right? Now, knowing this, informs a little bit about why Rebecca chooses to do what she did. It doesn't excuse her, right? But it informs us as to why she chose to do what she did. Here's where it gets a little interesting. We, sometimes, as God's people, we think we know what God's desires, motives, and activities are, and we really love to just help his plan along a little bit, don't we? Well, the Lord has good things for me. I'm just going to help those good things come a little faster and take some shortcuts in life every once in a while, right? Because there's good stuff coming to me. That's what Rebecca does here. Her sin isn't necessarily that she's full-on disobedient, but what, what Rebecca does 
she takes that, that, that call of God that says Jacob is going to rule one day and she doesn't faithfully let it happen the way God's plan needs to unfold, but instead she decides to meddle and help God along because God needs help here. I know that this is what God said, but he's not going to be able to do it unless I hatch a plan. And so she says, Jacob, Jacob, I know God said this, but Esau's about to get the blessing. We got to do something. We got to help him along. If we don't do something, God's plan's not going to come to fruition. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to lie and we're going to cheat. You're going to dress up as Esau. You're going to bring food instead. Thankfully, your, your father's blind. So when you go in, he probably won't even know who you are. And Jacob says, but like, I'm, I don't have any hair. Like, what if he tries to like hold my hand or something? He's like, okay, good point. We're going to glue fur to your hands and we're going to put all of Esau's burly clothes on top of you. So that if he touches you, he thinks that it's Esau. And so she falls into this sin and trap of trying to hurry God's plan along in her timing, not in his timing. And as a result, she falls into sin and she pulls Jacob in with her. And he's a willing participant, right? Another key thing to note here is that we, we get no basis whatsoever for God's choice of Jacob over Esau. There's nothing that suggests that one is better than the other. There's nothing that suggests that one is more faithful than the other. There's no kind of metric on an earthly sense by which we could measure and say, well, yeah, if we had been there at that time and we had seen those brothers, yeah, the firstborn's supposed to get it, but Esau was just so awful of a choice that we had to go with with the backup. We We don't see anything like that. And so God when they're even still in the womb, says Jacob's going to be the one through which I I carry things. And if you were to ask, well, based on what? God's reply would be, because I want to. Because that's my choice. That's what I've chosen to do as the holy God of the universe. One of the hard things as Christians to keep reminding ourselves of is that sometimes God will do things that we don't understand. He will move in ways that we don't understand. He will cause life to move in a direction that we don't understand. He will cause us to go through struggles that we don't understand. When that happens, he is sovereign. We are not. And that is a really hard lesson to learn as followers of Christ. And even if we learn it, it's a really hard lesson to live as followers of Christ. Growing up, no reason to understand Why on earth Jacob would be the one that should receive the blessing and be the one that that rules over the others. But God made his choice. Sometimes God goes against the cultural norm. What we think is the right move or at least the standard kind of traditional move. Sometimes he moves his church in new directions that we don't understand, but he calls us to go there faithfully and just be there and, and ride along and see what he does. But so often we, especially when God does some crazy things that we don't get, we want to say, no, like we're, we're going to help his plan or what we think his plan is to unfold the way that we think it should unfold. And we walk our own path. Right? This passage is a staunch reminder to let God be God and let us be his people. Right? God works and lives and moves in ways that we do not understand. So those are the two kind of small lessons of our day, right? Number one, we, we, we can't be chosen based on any qualification of ourselves. God chooses who to use and how 
on his merits, on, on, the, on the reasoning that he has that we don't get, right? He's providential. Right? And second, we don't get to help God along in our own way. God's timing is his timing. Our call as the people of God is to submit to it. But neither of those are the point of this whole story. They're little tangent side lessons that we get. The main thrust of the story is actually to, to point us to the gospel of Jesus Christ in its fullness. How does it do that? Well, generationally, if we look at the story in a small kind of fun, tunnel vision like we have been, what we see is these lessons that we learn about how we are to relate to God and how he's sovereign and, and always working and all these things. But if we look at it in the 30,000-foot view of the book of Genesis, one of the things that becomes apparent is that God continues to work in the midst of the sin of his people, right? What's the first half of the book that we looked at? Genesis 1 through 11. Creation happens, then sin happens, and things just keep getting spiraling worse until we get to the Tower of Babel, and that's kind of the hinge point of the book, right? Everything is completely down the tubes. There's no worship of God at all. And in the midst of that, in Genesis 12, he calls Abraham. He says, through you, I'm going to bless the whole world. He takes the promise he made to Eve, your offspring will crush Satan's head, and he, he transfers that promise over concretely to Abraham and his generational offspring. He says, look, you're, you're the one who I'm going to move through. Your generations are going to be as numerous as the stars. And what we see from that point on with each generation is a complete screw-up of all of them. Right? Abraham is called. He's faithful initially. But what happens? He encounters leaders that like his wife and how she looks, and so he doesn't want to be in trouble, and so he tells them that it's his sister, and essentially says, take her, just don't hurt me. Later, he's unfaithful with the promise that someday he'll have children. And he's, he tries to get them in, in different ways through servants and, and all kinds of things. Abraham is a mess, but God carries his promise through the midst of that mess. When Abraham and his generation screw things up, God course corrects and keeps his plan on track. Now we get to Isaac, and Isaac and his kids and that, that generation is screwing things up too. Here's the weird part of the story that we just can't quite get our heads around. When Jacob and Rebekah plot and get the blessing instead, two things happen. Number one, the dad sticks to it. He says to Esau, look, I've, I've blessed your brother. I can't take it back. But, but you, have, you can pronounce more than one blessing. You can, I, don't you have one for me as well? I'm your, I'm your oldest son. I'm your only eldest son. Like how, 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 well, no, man, sorry, Esau. The, the blessing has been given away. And by the way, years prior, Jacob cheated Esau out of his monetary inheritance too. Esau came in starving into the house and Jacob literally said, if you want this bowl of soup, you'll give me your whole inheritance. And Esau's not the brightest. And so he said, okay. He cheated him out of his money, and then he cheated him out of his blessing. Right? Later, Jacob will go on the run, and he'll struggle through life. He'll, he'll, he'll go to Laban, and he'll marry a couple different people. He really wants to marry one, but he keeps being handed the wrong wife, and so he keeps kind of enslaving himself over and over again, and, and his life becomes a mess too. But here's the key. There's a point down the road where Jacob wrestles with God all night. Right? And eventually... 
God, God defeats him, but he picks him up and he says, look, look I'm, I'm going to change your name. You're no longer Jacob. Your, your name is now going to be Israel. If you're wondering why we call the people of God throughout the rest of Scripture the Israelites, it's based off of Jacob being named Israel. And what God does eventually down the road in Jacob's life is he confirms the blessing that he got deceptively. God goes along with it because it was God's plan all along. Now, was it his plan to do it this way? No. It wasn't meant to happen through deceit and unrighteousness. But God, in the midst of Jacob's sin and mess and lies and deceit and conniving plots, in the midst of all of that, God stays sovereign to his plan. It was always going to be Jacob, one way or another. And as we see, as we keep going through the next generations, as we go all the way to the book of Genesis' conclusion, you're going to start to see that over and over again, you see this pattern of generational unfaithfulness and mess and God's steadfast hand in the midst of all of it. That's the pattern of Genesis from 12 all the way through to 50. The world can be in shambles. Our lives can be a mess. We can see no purpose, no movement, no idea where anything is going. But God is steadily moving his plan forward. He's in charge. He's sovereign. He's all-powerful. What he wants to see come to pass will come to pass. The promise of Abraham carries all the way through to Jesus And the promise of Jesus carries all the way through to us today. No matter where you are in your life, no matter how stuck you feel, no matter how distant you feel, no matter how much you are struggling through life and you think that God's not on the move, his plan is running at 100 miles an hour. And it's coming to fruition. Whether you believe it or not. I say this all the time, but I keep... I see these bumper stickers that say, you know, God says it, I believe it, that settles it. Take the middle sentence out of there. I don't care what you believe. God says it, that settles it. Oh, I don't know if I always believe that. Okay. You can believe the sky is not blue. It's still blue. Right? When God makes a promise, when God says he has a plan, That plan is moving and active and will come to fruition. You can take it to the bank. You can trust him. You can know that he is good. You can know that even when you can't see or feel his presence at all, that he is there and working actively in the lives of all those who love him according to his purposes. And you will one day get to see it. When you do, I guarantee you, you will fall on your face in awe of who he is. You won't be able to contain the joy that comes with understanding and seeing that you were part of his plan all along. Come, Lord Jesus. We long for that day where we don't have to wonder anymore, where we get to know of his goodness and taste and see it, and we get to look back at the plan that was the plan all along and how silly we were to ever doubt. That day will come, I promise you, because he promises you, and his promises are yes and amen, as we've talked about a hundred times. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your faithfulness in the midst of our sin. We thank you that you are good, 
We thank you that you love us. We thank you that your plan happens even when we don't think it can. Be with us. Remind us of your grace as we go out from this place. And Lord, we pray that we might be a people that discern constantly your will for us so that we might submit to your plan as you want to see it happen. Lord, forgive us when we try to take our lives into our own hands and and help you along a little bit. We pray that we would just be entirely sold out and submitted to you. That you would speak to us and that we would know where to move and where to live and where to have our being. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you save us. Thank you that you don't let us sit in the midst of our sin and our darkness, but you raise us up as God's people. Be with us this week. We love you and we praise you. And all God's people said,